Hello, and welcome to the story of Rhode Island, the podcast that tells you the story of Rhode Island's fascinating history. In last week's episode, we watched the Americans' plan of retaking the city of Newport come crashing down when a hurricane and the British fleet unexpectedly arrived in Rhode Island. And now, after losing support of the French, the American army on Aquinnick Island must find a way to safely retreat back to the Rhode Island mainland while the enemy attempts to run them down. As we jump into episode 7, it's late August of 1778, and General John Sullivan, a man anxious to repair his tattered reputation, can be seen standing atop a 200-foot-high hill known as Butts Hill. The hill is located within the town of Portsmouth on the northern end of Aquinnick Island. Surrounding that hill is a well-constructed fort that was built by the British Army back in September of 1777, but one that will now act as the central command post for General John Sullivan and his other commanding officers. One of those officers, Major General Nathaniel Green, is a man that we've come to know quite well throughout the Revolutionary War. However, the other, General John Glover, is new to us. Glover is a seasoned military officer from Massachusetts and a man who has been fighting in the Revolutionary War since it first began. And while each one of these men are from different states, there's one thing that they all have in common, a deep devotion to the cause they are fighting for. Something that can also be said for the 7,500 American soldiers within their ranks. And that's a good thing, because these men are going to need that devotion to accomplish the incredibly difficult task at hand. The American army must find a way to keep the enemy soldiers at bay so that they can lead an orderly retreat across the Sakonet River and back onto the Rhode Island mainland. If they fail, then thousands of American soldiers will either be killed or taken prisoner. But if they succeed, then they will live to fight another day and be able to continue to defend their newly acquired independence. Now, it won't be easy, as some of these men have never seen a day of battle in their entire lives, and they're fighting an extremely well-trained army. Both sides know that over the next several hours, men will die and blood will be shed throughout Aquidneck Island. The story of the Americans fighting to defend their ground during the Battle of Rhode Island is what we'll cover in this week's episode of the Story of Rhode Island Podcast. It's early in the morning on August 29, 1778, and American generals John Sullivan, Nathaniel Green, and John Glover can be seen standing around a table at their command center on Butts Hill. As a sleepless group of men rub their tired eyes, they study the map of Aquidneck Island sitting on the table in front of them. Located in the top right-hand corner of that map, about two miles east from where they stand, is Howland's Ferry. It's at this location where American troops will eventually be rowed across the Sakonet River and back into Tiverton, allowing them to retreat north back into Providence. Guarding that escape route, are 7,500 American soldiers stationed at various defensive positions throughout Portsmouth. Closest to the ferry are 2,500 militiamen from Massachusetts and Rhode Island, a group of inexperienced troops tasked with guarding the boats that will be used to escape. Then, there's the American officers in their command center on Butts Hill. This location is the American Army's last line of defense. If Butts Hill is overrun, then all hope is lost, and the Americans will have to make a mad dash across the Sakonet River, an outcome that would inevitably lead to a large part of their army being taken prisoner. South of Butts Hill are the Americans' two main wings. Their right wing, 
position on the west side of the island, stretches about a half mile southwest from Butts Hill to Durfee's Hill, or what we know today as Lehigh Hill. This wing is commanded by Major General Nathaniel Green. To the east of that wing is the Americans' left wing, commanded by General John Glover. The left wing expands almost a mile and a half south past the right wing, first to Turkey Hill, which is located at the present-day intersection of 114 and Headley Street, and then to Quaker Hill, right about where Route 138 intersects with Middle Road today. But even closer to the enemy, about two miles south of the right and left wings, are two light infantry units that will act as the Americans' advance guard. One of the units, led by Colonel John Lawrence, is located on the west side of Aquidneck, while the other, led by Colonel Henry Livingston, is located on the east side of Aquidneck. It will be up to the brave soldiers in the advance guard to bear the initial brunt of the British and German forces. And so these are the various locations and regiments that the officers study while standing at their command center on Butts Hill. The men point at the different hills and roads on the map to make sure that they're prepared for whatever the enemy throws at them. But then, only about a half hour after the sun has risen above the horizon, the officers are informed that Colonel John Lawrence's advance guard, stationed about five miles south from where they stand, has begun engaging with the Hessians. The men lift up their heads from the map, walk out of the tent, and direct their vision south. Each one of them know that the Battle of Rhode Island has begun. Retreating north from their initial position at the present-day intersection of Route 114 and Union Street are 100 American soldiers from the front of Lawrence's advance guard. As they head up the western side of Aquidneck Island, a group of 150 Hessian Chaucers follows closely behind. After a brief engagement, the Americans have killed one German soldier while wounding a few others. They know that the men closing in on them are anxious for revenge. After retreating for a short while, the Americans decide that they must defend themselves. So with their hands sweating from the heat of combat, they turn and fire at the Chaucers. Unfortunately, their fire is ineffective, so they're once again forced to retreat. Before long, they manage to make it back to the rest of the soldiers in the advance guard, bringing their numbers up to 300 men. Leading these men is Colonel John Lawrence of South Carolina a man in his mid-twenties whose death-defying stunts earlier on in the war have left some wondering if he has some sort of death wish. Colonel Lawrence comes from an extremely wealthy Southern family, and like most young men, he often finds himself clashing with his parents' more conservative views. Unlike his parents, Lawrence deplores the act of slavery, and recently wrote to his father that he believes that slaves have been, quote, unjustly deprived of the rights of mankind, unquote. Needless to say, the ideals he's willing to die for during this fight on Aquidneck Island are far more radical than those of his southern countrymen. When the men retreating make it to Lauren's line, he can tell that they're afraid. Therefore, in an attempt to rally their spirits, Lawrence rides his horse amongst his soldiers while waving his sword in the air. He tells them to remain steady and remember their training. Unfortunately, the men are in need of more than just training, as they are severely outnumbered by the approaching enemy. After regrouping and receiving reinforcements, the number of German soldiers now totals more than 1,800 men. When the American troops see the enemy soldiers charging at them from three different directions, the men promptly begin a hasty retreat. Lawrence, repeating the rash acts of bravery that he committed earlier on in the war, wildly begins waving his sword in the air, hoping it'll convince his men to stand and fight. But his attempts have no effect, and his men begin streaming past him as if they were a river flowing around a rock. Finally, showing some restraint, Lawrence kicks his horse and begins retreating alongside his men throughout the farms and fields on Aquidneck Island. 
As the German soldiers follow closely behind them, they pass by wounded American troops with blood scattered across their uniforms. During their pursuit, the Hessian soldiers come across a farm owned by a Quaker family that's remained neutral throughout the war. The Germans, believing that these locals might be housing American rebels, burst into the house while pointing their guns directly at the family. While holding their hands up in front of their faces, the Quakers begin to beg for mercy. Then, a loud cry is heard coming from a nearby farm as the wife and kids of another Quaker family witnesses their innocent father be murdered by German soldiers. Amidst this chaos, a group of American troops burst into the house and take the German soldiers by surprise. Seeing that they are outnumbered, the German troops put down their weapons and are forced to surrender. Before the American soldiers leave the house, the families walk over to thank the men who have potentially saved their lives. But when they approach the young men standing in front of them, men who hardly seem to be in their early 20s, the family finds themselves taken back by the look in their eyes. It's not only intense, but somewhat blank as well. It's as if the men have removed all emotion from their body so that they can simply focus on the task at hand, holding the line and making sure their fellow patriots get off of Aquidneck Island alive. So without a word being said, the Quaker family steps away from the soldiers and allows them to get on with their mission. As the fighting continues to rage, Lauren's advance guard makes a couple of more short-lived defenses against the German troops, but they are continuously forced to retreat all the way back to Turkey Hill. When they arrive on the hill, their numbers are increased by additional Continental regiments who have been sent in as reinforcements. The men bravely battle the German enemy, but are once again overpowered and forced to retreat back to the main lines to the west of Butts Hill. With the enemy now just having taken Turkey Hill, they're inching their way closer to the Americans' main line. While these Americans prepare to dig in their heels and attempt to hold their ground, we head over to the other side of the island to see how things are going on Quaker Hill. While there, we'll witness some of the most intense fighting of the day and meet some more of the brave men who risked their lives during this historic battle. Standing on the eastern side of Aquidneck Island is Quaker Hill. The hill is immensely important to the Americans as it is only about two miles south of Butts Hill, the Americans' last line of defense protecting their escape route at Howland's Ferry. Defending Quaker Hill is a handful of American regiments consisting of Colonel Wiggleworth's regiment, two regiments of advance guards who, just like we saw with General Lauren's advance guard, have retreated from their initial position, and a militia unit known as Sullivan's lifeguards. This final regiment is led by Lieutenant Aaron Mann of Providence and is made up entirely of Rhode Island men. One of these brave individuals is Obadiah Brown, a 36-year-old man from Providence with two daughters waiting for him at home. While he stands beside his fellow countrymen, he feels his heart relentlessly pounding as he watches the British enemy moving towards him. With sweat dripping off of his eyebrows, Brown takes a moment to calm himself by thinking of his daughters, Martha and Nancy. He reminds himself that once this is all over, he'll once again be reunited with them. But before that can happen, there's a battle that still needs to be won. Brown begins loading his weapon by lifting a paper cartridge out of his cartridge box and biting off its top. After spitting the top out of his mouth, he starts pouring some of the gunpowder down the priming pan. As he does, his trembling hand causes him to accidentally pour some of the powder onto the grass. Then, he pours the rest of the gunpowder and the musket ball down the gun barrel, rams it home, and then holds the musket vertically against his chest. While recalling the training that's been drilled into his memory, Brown stands there patiently until given the order to engage the enemy, or at least as patient as one can be during the heat of battle. 
While standing there, he hears Lieutenant Mann shout out, Steady men, wait for my order. To Brown, each second that passes feels like an eternity. He wants nothing more than to fire his weapon at the troops heading his way. Finally, at around 9 a.m., Mann shouts out the first order, Make ready! Brown holds his musket out in front of him and cocks the trigger. Then, Mann yells, Present! Brown proceeds to point his weapon towards the British soldiers, who are now within just 50 yards of him. Brown takes a long, deep breath, and then, just as he begins to exhale, he hears Mann yell, Fire! Brown pulls his trigger, and instantaneously, a loud bang comes from the gun, while a cloud of smoke rises up in front of his face. By the time it clears, a group of British troops are seen screaming on the ground. Then, shortly after Brown finishes reloading his weapon, Mann shouts out the same set of orders, and the men fire their weapons yet again. By the time a third volley is fired, hardly a minute has passed, and even more of the enemy soldiers are seen lying on the ground. With the British now in full retreat, Brown begins rushing towards the enemy, alongside his fellow militiamen. Eventually, some of the men take control of a British cannon and begin turning it towards the enemy. But just as the men finish turning the cannon, Brown notices that the once-retreating British soldiers have since been reinforced by other regiments. As he once again lines up beside his men, he prepares for the wave of enemy troops who are now on the offensive. And before long, a loud bang is heard yet again, but this time, the bullets are heading his way. Not even a second later, Brown feels something smack up against his body and a searing pain burning into his side. Finding himself in a state of shock, Brown stumbles backwards and drops his weapon. After hitting the ground, he realizes that he's been shot and begins clutching his wound. One of the men next to him tries to help him up, but as he does, Brown screams out in pain. With bullets still flying in the air and the enemy now charging forward with their bayonets, the pain only continues to get worse. As the seconds pass, Brown finds himself growing tired, and meanwhile, his heartbeat continues to slow. Then, with the enemy just a few yards away, Brown is lowered back onto the ground, and his brother-in-arms begins retreating with the rest of the men. Before long, the life drifts out of Obadiah's body, and he passes away on the battlefield, making him just one of the many men who will lose their life during the Battle of Rhode Island. After a retreat from their short-lived advance, the rest of the soldiers eventually regroup on Quaker's Hill and defend the strategic location while British troops relentlessly attack them from multiple angles. The man in charge of defending the hill, Edward Wigglesworth, rallies his men throughout the fighting, continuously doing whatever he can to encourage his men to hold their ground. For the next hour, the Americans valiantly defend the hill, showing the enemy forces how this once ragtag group of farmers and artisans has since been turned into a respected army. But nonetheless, the fighting grows more intense every minute, and some of the American commanders begin to wonder just how long they can hold their ground. Then, Colonel Wigglesworth notices a group of soldiers approaching from the west. Believing they are Americans, the colonel smiles as he's now positive that they'll be able to defend the hill. But just moments later, a man by the name of John Trumbull rides up beside him on his horse. After the war, Trumbull will become an American icon for the pictures he paints about the American Revolution. But for now, he's been sent to Quaker Hill to tell Wigglesworth that he must retreat. Having a hunch of the errand that Trumbull's been sent on, the colonel exclaims, quote, Don't say a word, Trumbull. I know your errand. But don't speak. We will beat them in a moment. Unquote. Trumbull promptly responds by pointing towards the west and saying, quote, Colonel Wigglesworth, do you see the troops crossing from the west road towards your rear? Unquote. The colonel becomes annoyed and tells him, quote, Yes, they are Americans coming to our support. Unquote. Trumbull responds by telling the colonel that he's wrong. 
They are not Americans, but they're actually German troops coming to cut off his retreat. Realizing his error, Wigglesworth groans in frustration, but eventually accepts the orders that are given to him. Moments later, his men allow the enemy to take Quaker Hill and begin retreating back to the Americans' main line at the foot of Butts Hill. The Americans' left wing is now at their last line of defense. If the Americans don't hold their line, then all hope is lost. They'll be overtaken and suffer a catastrophic number of casualties. So with over a thousand enemy troops rushing towards them, General John Glover prepares his men for impact. He positions them behind rock walls and reminds them about what's at stake. Then, with the enemy getting closer, Glover orders the artillery situated behind him to begin firing at the British troops. As the men peer over their shoulders, they see the 18-pound cannons from Butts Hill launching a deadly array of cannon fire at the enemy soldiers. Their cannonballs slam up against the dirt on Aquidneck Island while striking some of the enemy troops as well. As the minutes pass, more cannon fires release from the Americans' guns, and the British begin to give way. Eventually, the enemy troops realize just how well-fortified Glover's line is, so their commanders decide to retreat back to Quaker Hill. The Americans begin to celebrate, knowing that they've just held their line against a formidable force. At least for now. Because the fighting in Portsmouth has yet to come to a close, as the Americans' right wing on the west side of Aquidneck Island must hold their line as well. And heading towards them are the same German soldiers who we watched easily dismantle the Americans' advance guard earlier on in the day. It's now time to see just how skilled this rebel army has truly become. For the past three hours, the Americans have been at battle with an enemy force, attempting to cut off the retreat at Howland's Ferry. And although they've had to surrender Turkey and Quaker Hill to the enemy, the American soldiers have managed to retain control over their most important defensive position, Butts Hill. While they can proudly say that their left wing has held the line on the eastern side of Butts Hill, their right wing must now pass the same test. The man in charge of defending this vital location is Rhode Island's own Nathaniel Green. To ensure this position is held, Green has laid out numerous regiments along the hills and valleys to the west and southwest of Butts Hill. And one of these regiments is perhaps the most extraordinary regiment of the entire war. They are unlike anything the British, German, or American soldiers have ever seen, and a sight that many detest. They are the 1st Rhode Island Regiment, and most of the 140 men in their unit are formerly enslaved Rhode Islanders. While blacks have been in the American Army since 1775, they are typically unarmed and expected to act as either a personal servant to the officers or as a laborer tasked with activities like building fortifications. But that all changed in February of 1778, when Rhode Island authorized the creation of an armed regiment made up of enslaved men who would gain their freedom upon enlistment. And now, the men in this regiment stand at the forefront of the American defenses as they have been tasked with defending a redoubt at Durfee's Hill, a position that puts them about a half mile southwest of Butts Hill. Their fight won't be easy, as many of the men have never seen a minute of battle in their entire lives. And to make it worse, due to the color of their skin, they haven't been able to participate in military training like the rest of the American army. So as they stand underneath the hot summer sun, largely inexperienced and untrained, they hope that courage will push them through the next few hours of intense fighting. Their battle begins at about 10 a.m., when their commander, Samuel Ward, gives them the order to begin firing at the German troops rushing up Durfee's Hill. One of the men firing from the redoubt is Prince Green, a formerly enslaved man from Potawatomi in his mid-20s. After pulling his trigger, Prince watches German soldiers fall to the ground as the clouds of gun smoke rise in the air. 
Then, he and the other men in the 1st Rhode Island Regiment reload their weapons and fire another round at the enemy. Their aim proves to be highly effective, as the Chaucers are once again seen falling to the ground. Eventually, the German general, Frederick von Malsberg, realizes how badly his regiment has been damaged, so he calls his men back to regroup. Moments later, the Germans hear the 1st Rhode Island Regiment celebrating their early success, making them even more determined to overtake them than before. Knowing that for the moment he's out of harm's way, Prince lowers his weapon and takes a minute to catch his breath. After taking a few sips of water from his canteen, he nervously waits for the fighting to be reignited. Then, while sitting on the ground with his canteen in his hand, he begins hearing cannon fire coming from the British ships in Narragansett Bay. The cannons proved to be largely ineffective to the Americans' defenses, but that proves to be of little solace to Prince, as he knows the Germans are about to launch another assault on their lines any minute now. That assault takes place at about 11.30 a.m., and Prince Green is once again forced to defend the redoubt as enemy forces head directly towards him. While firing his weapon, he begins hearing cannon fire coming from the American artillery position behind him. The cannons prove to be extremely effective, and the Germans are once again forced to retreat. Then, right around noontime, the Germans launch their third and final assault on Durfee's Hill. It's at this moment when General Nathaniel Green decides to send in two additional regiments into the fighting, an action that prompts the Germans to do the same as well. The Americans once again fight splendidly, but they are eventually overpowered by the enemy troops and forced to retreat. Thankfully, General Green, with years of combat experience now under his belt, finds a weakness in the Germans' lines and promptly orders one of his regiments to attack that very spot. Soldiers begin flying across the battlefield, and the Germans slowly begin to fall back. With the Americans now having the momentum on their side, Green sends out over 800 more troops under Colonel John Trumbull to attack the fading German regiments. The enemy, realizing that they are surrounded, have no choice but to retreat all the way back to Turkey Hill. As they sluggishly drag their bodies up the hill, they begin to realize exactly what the British discovered on the eastern slopes of Butts Hill. The Americans' final defensive position is too well fortified to be overtaken. For the next few hours, an uneasy calm overtakes Aquidneck Island as the German and British generals strategize about what to do next. As they review a map of Portsmouth, they narrow in on Butts Hill, attempting to find some type of weakness in the Americans' position that they can exploit. But by 3.30 in the afternoon on August 29th, the enemy forces conclude that no such option exists, and they officially give up their assault. The Americans have done it. They've successfully held their line in the face of a formidable force, and prevented thousands of their men from being taken prisoner. Over the next day and a half, General John Sullivan completes the final part of his mission when he leads his army back to safety across the Sakonet River, allowing the Americans to live on and fight another day. And so although the Battle of Rhode Island wasn't the grand retaking of Newport that General John Sullivan and Nathaniel Green had hoped for, it nonetheless should be considered an impressive achievement. Not only did Sullivan and Green adapt wonderfully to a series of unforeseen circumstances being thrown their way, but they've proven yet again that the American army is able to compete with the opposing British and German forces. On top of that, the statistics also stand in favor of the Continentals, as the enemy forces suffered 260 casualties, while the Americans lost only 211 of their own. Shortly after the battle, the men who participated in the conflict go their separate ways and play their own unique role in their fight for independence. General John Sullivan continues to fight in the Revolutionary War until he has to resign due to health issues. When he returns to his home state of New Hampshire, he's welcomed back as a hero and eventually elected into Congress. 
Meanwhile, Prince Green and the other men in the 1st Rhode Island Regiment fight in other critical battles and demonstrate bravery in each and every one of those engagements. American officers John Glover, Edward Wigglesworth, and John Lawrence continue fighting as well, but unfortunately, not all survive. Colonel John Lawrence, the man who led the advance guard on the western end of Aquidneck Island, will eventually succumb to his fiery passion for the Patriots' cause. In a few years, Lawrence will be shot dead while valiantly charging towards an enemy force, perhaps going out exactly as he had hoped for. But as for Rhode Island's very own, General Nathaniel Green, well, his story still has a long way to go, as he's about to pull off what many historians consider to be the most brilliant military performance of the entire war. Following the Battle of Rhode Island, fighting in the north pretty much comes to a standstill as the British unleash a devastating campaign on the southern colonies. Over the next couple of years, the American Southern generals, Benjamin Lincoln and Horatio Gates, suffer a series of devastating defeats, and by the fall of 1780, the Patriot Southern Army is on the verge of being destroyed. If this were to happen, then the Southern colonies would be brought back under British control, and the Americans would probably lose the Revolutionary War. And so, during this dire situation, George Washington decides to turn to his most trusted general, a man from Rhode Island whose Quaker upbringing prominent limp, and complete lack of military experience when joining the revolution initially made him an unlikely warrior, but a man who has since turned into a skilled military tactician. Well now, it'll be up to Nathaniel Green to head south so that he can revive the Southern Army and save the Americans from losing the Revolutionary War. But that's a story for next time, on next week's episode of the Story of Rhode Island podcast. Thank you for listening to the Story of Rhode Island. If you are enjoying the podcast, please be sure to leave a review and to follow the podcast as well. If you'd like to learn more about today's episode and others as well, you can visit storyofrhodeisland.com. You can also follow me on Instagram at Story of Rhode Island or on Facebook at the Story of Rhode Island podcast. Thank you again and see you next time.